Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I am, according to my job description, the host of this show. <laughs> uh, but I'm delighted to have Pastor Tom Parrish and Dr. Greg Borgon as my guest for Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk. And what we do in this segment of the uh, show every week is we solicit questions, and then we just try to answer them. So it's pretty simple. If you have a question about God or the Bible or anything that you have been thinking about or struggling with, it doesn't matter how long. Text it over, and we'll do our best to answer. The number is 877-933-2484. Gentlemen, welcome back to Hour 2. Fun to be back. Good all right. to be here. A uh, listener named Joy, uh, all the way from Connecticut, said, to what was said about teachers being held more accountable, your humbleness and being fully aware gives you a step up. Adding you to my prayers, God will give you a firm nudge when needed. God bless. Oh, I'm so oh, grateful. Wonderful. Thank, Thank you. you. Isn't that lovely? Wow. Yeah. Yep. People are awfully nice around here. All right. Uh, gentlemen, uh, our Bible study is in the book of John, specifically John chapter 16. And this question came up. Why do we end our prayers in Jesus' name? I've been doing this for years, sometimes just automatically. Is there some historicity to praying this way? When did it become customary to end our prayer that way? Biblically, what we're doing is we're giving, when we end it in the name of Jesus, we're establishing the authority, where this prayer is coming from, where this prayer, what it's based on. As the New Testament developed, and, and as the church then developed after the writing of the New Testament, they began to see more and more and more the reality of Jesus, not only in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, that he's throughout the whole thing, that he—that is the name above every other name by which we must be saved. And so the church uh, very early added that on because they wanted to understand the personalization of Jesus, who came, came human among us, lived among us, sinlessly died and rose from the dead. And we know that's where the authority is. And so there's power in the name of Jesus. Uh, you know, you have a scripture like, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. So I agree with Tom. And it's simply an acknowledgement of where the source of power lies. It's not with us. It's with him. All right. Thank you. All right. Here's another question. When Jesus was baptized by John, what was the reason? To be an example or to receive the Holy Spirit? What's well, interesting, because John, isn't it interesting? The Bible says he was baptizing on the far side of the Jordan, which is the side Joshua and the people came through when they came through the Jordan mm -hmm. River into the Promised Land. Well, what did Jesus bring us? He brought us the new covenant. And so in Jesus, we have the new covenant personified in the person. And I think that instead of just walking across the water, I've struggled with this for years. I believe Jesus went to be baptized, even though John didn't want to do it, but Jesus said, let's do it now for all righteousness, was part of that understanding of the new covenant. The Lord is doing a new work, and that new work is centered in the person of Jesus. I think it was also um, to establish the public dimension of his ministry. Mm. 
went from private to public. Mm-hmm. And so we received God's imprimatur, God's seal of approval through the Holy Spirit, the dove, the appearance of the dove. And so you had the whole Trinity there, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son. So it was to move from a private ministry to a very public ministry. Wasn't it also some kind of um, ceremonial event when you uh, go into ministry full-time, that that would be a, 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 cer- a ceremony, ceremonial ceremonial ritual? Well, in the temple, they had, that out. They they had ritual washings. Yeah. You know, and that, that was pretty common. I'm sure that if we could study the history of the Pharisees and Sadducees even deeper, we'd understand they went through ritual washings. So there may be something there. But historically, I don't know enough about that to make a definitive statement. Mm-hmm. All right. Here's a question. Could you explain Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23? Why would Jesus say he never knew certain people who prophesied, cast out demons, and did mighty works all in the name of Jesus? How do I know if I have a genuine relationship with Jesus? Oh, that's an easy answer. Go ahead, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually looking at the passage. Oh, my. Yeah, that's a, that's a deep one. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. 21 through 23. I'm looking at it. Not everyone who says to me, <clears throat> Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I think all he's doing is acknowledging the fact that you have no part in me, as if you never existed. That's what he's really saying here, I think. And when I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. In other words, they were not sanctioned by Christ. They were not empowered by God. They didn't carry the mantle. They may have have gone through the motions of of representing the king, but they were no representative. They, they, were, they were false representatives. They were false prophets. That's what it's talking about. So he's saying in a hyperbole, I didn't know you. Mm-hmm. You say you represent me? I didn't know you. And so he's just simply saying that you have no part in me. A week from this Sunday, I started teaching on how to accurately study the Bible through the summer to our church. And one of the struggles for most Christians is, and I very much believe in inerrancy and infallibility. I have no problem with that. But we don't understand. There are sections of Scripture that are poetry. There are sections that are hyperbole. There are sections that are metaphorical. And we have to look at the context. And if we don't do that, and I think Greg pointed out well, now we try to make a theological statement out of this, and that's not the purpose of it. The purpose is to say, look, I'm calling you to do my will. You guys used my name, but you didn't do my will. Yeah. And that's what he says in verse 21. Yeah, it's biblical figures of speech. I'd encourage the audience that they're interested in um, you know, making a distinction between hyperbole and a metaphor and analogy and so forth, that uh, you'd look that up. Biblical um, uh, a speech in, in terms of figures of speech, I think that will be helpful. All right, why didn't God stroll through the garden as Eve walked to the tree? Hmm. Uh, So basically, I think the question is asking, why didn't the Lord get close to her and say, don't touch that apple? Yeah, why didn't he create create his presence right at the time she was approaching the tree where she might have been 
stopped yeah. by... Well, I think a lot of us are like Eve. When we're tempted, we would like the Lord to step in, visibly show up, smack our hands, and say, go the other way. Mm-hmm. That's not how it works when you live by faith. And what you see here in Adam and Eve is they had a living relationship with the Lord, but there was still faith involved that what the Lord had said is what they ought not to do, whether his presence was there or not. Now, his presence was there all the time. He just did the visible presence. Same with us today. The Lord Jesus is always there. And when I'm tempted, my choice is, do I talk to Jesus about it or do I simply fulfill my desires? Unfortunately, she went for the apple and so did uh, Adam. And I think in the last segment we talked about this, there's consequences to, um, you know, having free will. So Adam and Eve had free will. They could decide for or against anything that God asked them to do. And it, it was as evident in the temptation of, of Eve and, and the follow-up w- with Adam. So there are consequences to it. I mean, when you're raising children, for instance, and you've been training them to make good decisions as, as children, sometimes a situation, a circumstance happens, and you withhold giving them the answer to give them an opportunity to um, address that event or that circumstance and to observe how they're going to respond, and then maybe the correction happens afterwards. But you don't intercede and say, oh, no, you don't do that. Oh, no, you don't do that. So you give them that opportunity. But anyway, I think it goes back to the whole issue, Bill, again, of free will, and they had free will, and so consequently, um, they if, if God had interceded, he didn't want robots. Mm-hmm. So I think, Greg, you probably have a spouse like I do. Because I will come home, I come home from a meeting, or I come home from a long day, and I'm a little bit on the frustrated side with people and the decisions they make. And I, I say, you know, this thing of free will, I'm not sure that's a wise thing. I think the Lord <laughs> couldn't have allowed that. And, and my wife will say to me, honey, you couldn't even ask the question if he didn't give you free will. That's right. So I rejoice in that, and she's right. Good point. All right, uh, Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk, 877-933-2484. You said earlier that Satan will start attacking you as soon as you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But I've heard you say on other programs that once you are saved, you're always saved. So what is Satan doing if he can't take away your salvation? Is it that he's trying to keep you from trying to save others? Well, I think the goal is to make us as ineffective for the kingdom of God as possible. I I don't think we've understood fully when Jesus, the Bible says that Jesus is the the uh, groom and the church is his bride, that he is the head of the church. As his people of the church, his ecclesia, we are people that are meant to go out and to be his voice now in the world and his hands and to go out and bring the good news of the gospel. The problem is, for most of us, is that we get pulled off the mark. We get busy with other things, and Satan delights in that. If he can get me anywhere off the mark from what I'm supposed to be doing and make me ineffective for the kingdom of God, all the better. Hmm. My biggest concern is there's a whole movement today, Greg, maybe you've heard of it, called Dunners. These are young people that are saying they're done with the church. They believe in Jesus, they believe in salvation, but they're tired of the church, and they're tired of the same old thing, and they're tired of the hypocrisy, so they're Dunners. And I had a young person ask me that not long ago. You know, why are you still a pastor? I'm a Dunner. And I said, great, when did Jesus send you the memo? Because he has not sent me the memo that says I'm done with the church. It is in that setting of being together that we help spur weather along to good deeds, to working together, supporting one another. And I think that's where the effectiveness comes from. My personal effectiveness is only so limited. But think about it for a moment. My effectiveness here with all of us right now 
goes up immensely because what Greg has to say, you have to say, Rosie behind the counter here, there's a power when the people of God come together that I don't think we fully understand. Remember what Satan is trying to accomplish is to somehow diminish the reputation of God. Mm -hmm. He's trying to detract from the gospel. He's trying to keep people from either making the decision. And he's in, in this case, we're talking about Christians. So what he's trying to do is to make sure that you're off the mark, that you're sidelined, that you're marginalized, that you have nothing of value to, to, to say. Because here's what Satan's strategy is, Bill uh, and Tom. The, the enemy will always remind you of the failures of your past. God wants to bring you to the victory of your future. And the struggle is in the presence, but God is God and Satan is not. So if you're hearing that first-person word in your head about reminding you about your failures and shaming you, as we said in a previous program, God doesn't shame anyone. He convicts them, but he doesn't shame them. If you're being reminded of the failures of your past, that's of the enemy. He wants to make sure that you are not going to, to put on the armor of God to fulfill your purpose and he's also afraid that you will become his, his formidable foe. So he's going to do everything he can to distract you or to tempt you or to move you away from any influence whatsoever so no one will be drawn to God's son's cross. Hmm. Well said, Dr. Greg Borgon. We're going to take a break and be back with more Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. Greg and Tom are with me today. Questions are welcome. 877 Eight, four. Feel free to send as hard a questions as you want, and I will ask them, okay? All right, we'll be right back. This is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. Great questions coming in. Thank you for sending them over. 877-933-2484. It is time for more Guy Talk. Guys who talk, Greg Borgond, Tom Parrish are my power panel. They're doing an outstanding job. So why are you guys snickering? <laughs> the word power. The power is, pedal. Is, is, I love you know, that. We, we, we know that the power, honestly, and I'm not being, trying to be false here, you preach and teach enough the word of God, and you see people's lives changed. You recognize where the power comes oh, from. Oh, totally. And it doesn't come from me. No, no, I'm, I'm well aware but of that. We're, we're happy that you want to put us in that category, and we'll take it for about two seconds. <laughs> you guys know where your power comes from. That's yes, what makes yeah, you yeah, my yes, power panel. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I'm, Fine with that. Now. Thanks for the clarification. Yeah, no, we're that's, feeling much better. That's what I try to do here. Uh, okay, here's a question. What are, let's see, I just had it. Where'd it go? Uh, what does the Bible teach about mental health? What does the Bible say about mental health? It doesn't, I don't think you're going to see the, the, the medical term mental health in the Bible as we understand it. What you will see is that people who have various diseases, people of various problems, um, in the New Testament, the people that we would say now have mental health problems were signs of Jesus as to who he was because it was there was a demonic involved. 
I've worked with enough of this over the years, and one of the advantages I had working with medical doctors is that I could literally say to people that came in who told me they were hearing voices or they were uh, you know, seeing things at night or whatever it may be, the first thing I do is I ask them if I can get permission to consult with their doctor, and I've been able to do some of that. Also, I've become fair in understanding some of these medications and what it does to people. But I also then go the, the, the other route and look at it. What would the demonic be doing in this? And I, in most cases, I'm coming to the conclusion it's a combination. It's not just strictly one or the other, unless there's a brain tumor, that the brain is whatever. Chemical imbalance or something like yes, that. Yes, that I understand. But in most cases, when you go to psych wards, and I've been in quite a few of the psych wards, and I've talked with people, those people there, there is a greater depth to what they're saying than most people realize, but you've got to listen closely, and you can sometimes almost hear the sinisterness of what's going on inside of them. All right. Thank you uh, for that question, uh, that answer, Tom Parrish. Um, let's see. Can a Christian be affected by the demonic or are they protected? A Christian can be oppressed, but they cannot be possessed. Okay. Yes. So Christ abides in you through the, through the Holy Spirit, and the two cannot um, live in the same plane. And so the fact of the matter is, it says in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, that he's our seal, our guarantee of our salvation. So it's very possible to be oppressed by the enemy, but a Christian cannot be possessed by the enemy. Yeah, and I think here's one thing we've got to be careful of. Lutheranism, you know, we, we baptize infants as well as adults. And uh, I know in most of my acquaintances, the Baptist churches, and I've worked with a lot of Baptist pastors, kids as young as five, six years old are making confessions to Jesus, which I am fine with. But here's the problem. The church and the parents have to go overboard with those that make those early confessions because everybody else in their life is going to be tempting them to play the Ouija board, the tarot cards, the other thing. Not that the devil is going to come in and possess them, and I agree with you, Greg, there, but he's going to make life very harder for these young kids as they become adults, and many of them wind up drifting away from the church, not being effective disciples because they've got caught up in other things. That can be broken, but I think we have to be much more vigilant with our children. When you sin in the same direction for an extended period of time, it isn't long before it becomes a, a um, stronghold uh, for the enemy. And that's what oppression is all about. A stronghold means that he has a hold on us. But we have to remember what Scripture says, he who is in us is greater than he who is outside of us. And the fact of the matter is the Spirit of God lives in us. And so we cannot be possessed, but we certainly can be oppressed. Well, Greg, this next question I have is probably a good uh, companion question to what you just said. Because the question is, will God ever stop forgiving a sin that we repeatedly and knowingly struggle with for years? I mean, there's your stronghold that you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, it goes back to the, the difference again between, um, you know, positional forgiveness and relational forgiveness. It can be that we are, because it is a stronghold, it, it keeps surfacing in our life. Um, I talk about the fact that what we do generally is we wrap this steel band of discipline around our behavior, getting it to conform to some acceptable standard that's kept in place either by the tenacity of our will, the fellowship we keep, the rules we obey, but life cascades in us, 
the steel band snaps and we revert back to the same sin that we had received forgiveness for and that we thought we had victory over. I think part of the problem, Bill, is that we're only going halfway when we confess the sin. In other words, we, we know an awful lot about removal through confession, where we acknowledge that it breaks God's standards, that it was the reason that Christ was driven to the cross to begin with. But we were forgiven at that cross. So the fact of the matter is we need to confess that sin, receive forgiveness. But the next thing is, is we have to go to the second step, which is to replace it with truth. Because all you create in many cases when you confess that sin is a spiritual gap. It's kind of like going to the dentist where you have a decayed tooth. They remove the decayed tooth, but they do no replacement. They don't put a bridge in. They don't put a substitute tooth in. And so your bridge starts to collapse in on it. And the, the problem is seven times greater than it originally was. So the idea is it's really a two-step process. Removal through confession, replacement with truth, to live from the truth and not the lie of the enemy. Mm. That's the only road to victory. And what does Jesus say about forgiveness? He said, you know, if your brother sins against you, you know, it's 70 times 7. Yeah, to Peter, the, yeah. And he is the king of the king and lord of lords. And so his willingness to forgive. Now, look. There are times we willingly sin, and then we come back and we say, that was stupid, that was wrong, forgive me, Jesus. Now, I know people that have done that three, four hundred times in their process, and they're trying to work out of it, but they're, they're having a hard time. I am convinced that every time we go back to Jesus, he is more than ready to forgive us, even if he knows we're going to do it again. But it's a process. And again, this is where I, I the older I get, the more I am impressed with Jesus' idea of the church. This is where men especially need other men to sit with them and say, so, Greg, how are you doing with that stronghold that you've been battling for these last 20 years? Where's the accountability? As long as the devil keeps us isolated, he's got us. What we need to do is be open to one another. But the stronghold conversation is a big one. It's huge. And it's so prevalent out there among people. I mean, I see this all the time. I know pastors that are fighting huge strongholds in their life but who they talk to? Yeah, most of them are terrified to bring. What, you can't what, bring it up to a congregation. What kind of strongholds? Oh, they're all the way from pornography to uh, lusting after another woman to money issues and sure. how they're dealing sure. with it. I mean, all of those things. And yeah, it's a real problem. Hmm. All right, we're gonna take a break. We come back. Lots more guide talk. Uh, let me know what questions you have. And great questions are coming in. So thank you for supplying us with questions. Eight seven seven nine three three two four. Eight four. When we come back, I'm going to ask you guys about when we say the Bible is inerrant, are we talking about the original text in the original language? Because I see some major differences in some different English translations. How do we justify those translation issues? That and lots more, more God Talk when we come back.
Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Yeah. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. We are back answering questions as fast as we can. Great questions have come in have been coming in today. Thank you for those. 877-933-2484. Tom Parrish and Greg Borgond are here answering questions to the very best of their ability. Uh, here's a question I prompted before the break. When we say the Bible is inerrant, are we talking about the original text in the original language? Because I see some major differences in different English translations. How do we justify those translation issues? All right. When we talk about the the Word of God being inspired, we're talking about uh, in the original manuscripts, which we have far more um, segments and whole copies dating uh, back in antiquity to review. So the idea is is that there's three different types of translations. There's word-for-word word translations, there's thought-for-thought thought translations, and then there are paraphrase translations. So what we have today is the result of biblical scholarship over centuries that have learned more about the languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, um, and Greek, Koinonia Greek, Common Greek, and so we have a better understanding of what was said, what was the authorial intent. That's what was inspired. So when we talk about word-for-word translations, uh, my recommendation for the listening audience is they pick up something like the English Standard Version, uh, which is word-for-word translation. The New American Standard Version is a word-for-word translation. And so consequently, the latest translations are, are more accurate than previous ones simply because we know more about not only customs and traditions, but the languages. But what we do know is, is that where the differences appear, probably what the, you know, the, the person raised, they're, they're minor in yeah. terms of the differences between the latest translations. So consequently, you can trust it. Because it's Scripture itself speaks to its own inspiration. You know, it's profitable for teaching reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, or a man and woman of God. It's complete for every good work, um, and it, it, it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of your heart. So we understand that the Word of God is inspired. It's not like any other book, and here's part of the proof of that. Tell me, for instance, how hard it is to pick up the Word of God once you've set it down for a period of time, but that's not the case with a novel. Tell me why, when you do pick up the Word of God, and uh, with every intent to want to study it, all of a sudden you get drowsy and your mind gets distracted. That isn't the case with a novel. That should be an indication what you're dealing with is something different than any other common written document. Nice. There's historical Greek manuscripts that have been found by archaeologists and go back, again, millennium, are virtually identical. I mean, there's the very minor, minor, minor differences if you want to get into that. When you get into English or otherworldly translations of it, I went to a translation one time, God's Word, which came out of Cleveland, the, the Missouri Senate. I sat in for a whole day when the translators were working together. And when they would come up, they'd take a Greek word and they'd say, well, it can mean this and it can mean that, and it's got more depth to it than this. When they had to come down to one or two words, they voted on it. <laughs> and that's the crazy part. Mm -hmm. Problem is, if we had the Bible, the New Testament especially, with all the nuances of the Greek. Nobody could carry it around. It's much, much bigger than that. 
That's why when I started uh, ministry a long time ago, my wife bought me an eight-translation New Testament, and I would sit there with eight different translations. <laughs> and Well, now I've got the Internet, and on my iPad, I have over 50 translations, and I look at many of them often when I'm teaching or preaching, as well as the Greek and the Hebrew. The other thing you have to rely on when you're reading the Word of God is allowing the Spirit of God to go ahead and be your teacher. That's one of his, yeah. his jobs, your counselor your instructor about what the Word of God is saying to you. But that means that, you know, it's it's what you were teaching in, in some of your classes, observation, interpretation, and application. What is the text actually saying? That's observation. What does the text actually mean? That's interpretation. The rules of interpretation are easy to find. They're used oftentimes in historical documents as well as in, in Scripture. And then finally, application. What uh, what did it mean in terms of application at the time it was written, in the culture it was written? What does it mean to us generally, and what does it mean to me, or how should I apply it specifically? So when we go to the Word of God, it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's inspired. Mm-hmm. I love it. I usually teach the, what the three W's. You know, when you do Bible study, what does it actually say? So what does it actually mean, and what are you going to do about it? And it's really the application, the all of those things, because here's the biggest problem I see in Bible study. We read it, we may pray over it, and then we close the book. No, we're supposed to read it, pray over it, and go do it. If you've got somebody to forgive, go forgive yeah. them. I mean, when you take a look at it, um, when you talk about getting a solid grasp of God's Word, if all you're doing is hearing the Word, you're probably only going to retain maybe 5 to 10%, if that. If you're hearing and reading, it jumps up to maybe 15% to 20%. But when you move to the three deeper levels of study of God's Word, which is the study of the Bible, the memorization of the Bible, and the meditation of the Bible, when you go to that kind of depth in your study, there's, there, and there's a communication theory, you'll retain anywhere from 75 to 90%. Wow, that's significant. All right, you guys just answered my next question, so I can skip this one, because it says, I would like to read and understand the Bible. What book should I start with? I think, Tom, I'm going to suggest that I can maybe send that to you, and you can send your 21-day study of the book of John. If if this listener would like that, I would be more than happy to do that. Glad to do it. All right, uh, you mentioned tarot cards. Is it dangerous to get uh, tarot card reads and medium reads, etc.? Well, you know, is it is it dangerous to open the door of a lion in a cage who's hungry? Yes. Yes, it is. And it's the same thing with tarot cards, palm reading, crystals. It, they may seem Ouija very, boards, yeah. they may seem very benign, and usually the people that do them, they're laughing and they make it sound so funny. And and well, yeah, let me see your hand. I can tell you, you know, your future by looking at your hand. The problem is we're opening ourselves up. Christians who do that are opening themselves up to a stronghold that they don't want to get into. Because it is amazing how the devil then keeps that on your mind and keeps going back and saying, you need to do a little more of that. You can need a little more control, a little more understanding. And I've watched people get so deep into it that uh, even though they've given their life to Jesus, they're, forgive me, they're almost worthless to the kingdom of God because they're so caught up in the universe. And no, I would say stay completely away from it if you can. If you've got them in your home, get rid of them. And the way I got rid of them when I first learned this 50 years ago, I we used to have a barrel in the backyard, and I burned them. Uh, I just burned everything and got rid of it. Yeah, get rid of it. 
Mm -hmm. I saw a psychic studio in a strip mall that put up a sign that said, um, sorry, we lost our lease. Don't you think they should have seen that one coming? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I love it. (laughs) All right. Um, Are fallen angels able to be redeemed? Are humans held in higher regard than angels? Angels are absolutely uh, God's creatures. They're created beings, but they're not human. In other words, um, God came to save us as humans. And so an angelic being has has a superior intellect. Um, They're God's messengers. They have different functions and roles, but they're not humans. And so when it comes to redemption, redemption is for mankind. Those who made a decision to embrace Satan's um, rebellion are fallen angels and will pay the price for it. There's nothing in Scripture that talks about the redemption of angels, but there is a lot in Scripture about the redemption of humankind. That's exactly what I was going to say. Couldn't say it any better. All right. Here's another question. What is, um, let's see, I had it and I lost it. Uh, Okay. Uh, What is Jesus saying when he says the following, truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's Matthew 18, 18. Now, I know you guys know that verse, and it's sure. been discussed, and this question's been asked on the show before. Um, but So we don't have to take a lot of time. If one of you would like to answer it, that'd be great. I don't think most Christians understand the authority we have in the name of Jesus and what he's done. And so the binding and loosing um, is basically, we now have his authority to speak the truth to people. Yes, your sins are forgiven or no, you're not repenting, or you don't believe in Jesus, no, your sins are not forgiven. It doesn't mean that we lord it over people or we use it as a sledgehammer. It means that we now get to speak literally for the Lord and have the authority to say to people, the Word of God says, and Jesus says, you are forgiven, therefore you are forgiven. That's the the, the binding and the loosing thing. Mm-hmm. All right, how do we as believers explain the love God has for all mankind when non-believers point out, for example, God's direction to Israel to completely destroy the many peoples that occupied the promised land. I think one of their problems is we weren't there. We don't know what was going on with those people. Most of us don't understand the kind of child sacrifice and the type of things that were going on in those other religions. Some of them were probably at a point of non-redemption. They weren't going to be redeemed. Uh, And so the Lord, bringing the people into the promised land, said, get them out of here. Unfortunately, they didn't get them all out. They took some out, but they didn't get them all out. And we can see the infection it created, you know, with King David and King Solomon and their foreign wives and other things. And I think the saddest statement in the Bible is the last statement about Solomon in the Old Testament, that he was building, you know, temples to Shemash and Moloch, the god of child sacrifice, for his foreign wives. So, yeah, it's, it's, there was an infection there, and the infection had to go. We ha- I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, we have to remember about God's attributes. He's omniscient, all-knowing. He's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, and he's omnipresent, he's everywhere at once. So when he looks at a situation, remember, he's not bound by time. So consequently, he can take a look at a nation and can see what the future is going to be if they're left unchecked. He can see the damage that's going to be done 
Um, he's going to see the he can see the ramifications of their their growing rebellion against God, and so consequently, we only see what's happening in that period at the moment. And so we ask the question, which is a legitimate question: Well, how could God do that to a whole nation? Well, there's where trust in God comes into play. He sees well beyond that. Who are we to question God? He sees things we cannot see. We don't understand what the ramifications would be because we can't see into the future like God can. Maybe when we're in his presence, we can ask him the question of why he did that. But I think we're going to know. So the consequence is, is that we're only looking at what's recorded in Scripture. We don't see what God sees. And so we need to trust him. He knows what he's doing. It's interesting. I was invited to preach at a prison several years ago. So I go. It's the so all the people are there. Were you were you serving time in prison? <laughs> I was. I was. Were you there? Had, were you there as a resident? I, time, had, I had twenty minutes. To okay. preach. that's all the time <laughs> yes. I had. All right. So it's it's like a couple of days before Christmas. All the guys are there in their orange outfits, you know, and they're sitting and they look pretty gloomy because they, you know they're they're there but they don't want to be there. Anyway, as I'm going up to give the sermon, and I had a sermon all prepared, as I'm going up. And I can't say that I heard an audible voice, but inside it was, tell these guys two things. Number one, I love them. Number two, don't mess with me. (laughs) And when I got up there, I thought, this is crazy, but I'm going to do it. And so I said, guys, I have a direct word from Jesus for you. And a few heads came up, and I said, Jesus loves you. Yeah, we've heard that before. Then I said, and he also said, don't mess with me. Every head came up in that place. Every guy was looking at me. And suddenly, I think they came to the came to to grasp that the God that they may not be serving is not one to be messed around with. And they had the longest line I was told of guys wanting to talk to me. I was there for another hour or so afterwards nice. that they've nice. ever had. That's the power of the real God that we're dealing with. Amen. We'll take a break. Come back with one more segment of God Talk. Thanks for your great questions. Still have time for yours. Eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. Dr. Greg Borgond and Tom Parrish are my guests. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. Never uh, realize most days you go. Oh, I got a lot of work to do, just in life, <laughs> you know. And it's usually in relationships. That's yeah. where the most of the work really is. Yeah, but there's also you know things in uh, work related and, and just busyness of life. Of course, things that tearing of the urgent house, and all yeah, those household chores and everything else. Yeah, could be taxing. <laughs> well, I, I think the thing people have asked me, how do you write? you know, a sermon every week and teach every week and even teach midweek and not get worn out through this. And yeah, it can be taxing, Mm -hmm. but for me, it's also energizing. And so Mm -hmm. for me, I I come away excited, not uh, defeated. Awesome. All right. Here's a question. Sometimes in weekly confession in church, the wording implies I did everything in every situation wrong. It makes me wonder if it's possible for me to do anything right, even as a child of God. I sometimes wonder if we should even <coughs> try to follow God's directions if I can't obey them anyway. However, Jesus says we should do the things he tells us to do and avoid the things he tells us not to do. Your thoughts? Well, 
the liturgies are, many of them are ancient. They go back a long way. They probably could be said a little bit better. Yes, you can do things right with the Lord, and you should do things right. As a matter of fact, I hope that becomes more of your reality. The All of the confession is on Sunday morning for a believer. This is not the confession to get you saved if you're already saved. The confession on Sunday morning is to simply re- get you right with the Lord in areas you've dropped short on. You know what those are. So more often than not, if when we have confession, and we have a limited liturgy, not a very long one in the church I'm in, but there are times I will say to people, let's take a moment of silence, and let's and you tell Jesus exactly where you fell short this week, and then also thank him for the things you did right this week. And we do that as well. I like that. We, we need to understand that behavior is always an indication of something going on much deeper. Behavior is always a symptom of what's actually going on in our hearts. What we need to understand is God is very clear. He says he judges the motives yeah. of men's hearts. So sometimes, for the listener, you can have the best motive and not produce the result that you hope was going to be produced. At other times, you can have a terrible motive, and it produces a great result. But the result isn't what God is looking at. He's looking at your motive. So the fact is, is that, and you know, I teach a lot on values. Values, of course, are the hills you're prepared to die on, the principles you intend to live by, the filter through which you process all life decisions. And those values, biblical values, when you act on them in the same direction over an extended period of time, there are going to be failures as well as successes. But you're going to be building a a spiritual habit, a spiritual muscle. And so when that value, when you begin acting on that value without thinking of it, it becomes a virtue in your life. It's part of your character. So it's possible to be doing things right while you're doing things wrong, but what God judges, uh, reiterated again, is the motives of men's hearts. Absolutely. Do you guys have any information on when Psalm 23 was written in the life of David? Was it in his later years, or do you know when that? I I don't know exactly, but if you take the intent of the word, it it probably was when he was sheep herding. Um, But uh, no, I I, I don't have an an idea exactly when he wrote it. Mm -hmm. I don't either. I can't qualify on that. I had a guest on, John Bloom, a couple weeks ago, and he was talking about how amazing it is that David writes Psalm 23, My God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? Incredible desperation. And then the next uh, chapter is 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you, let's be honest. David lived to the height of glory and the pits of hell. He lived in both realms. In both realms, Yahweh was there for him. And that's what we need to realize, too. No matter how far down we go, there's always redemption, or there's always the Lord bringing us back. And I think Psalm 22 and 23 solidify that. Mm-hmm. You know, David is every man. I mean, just like Thomas saying, there were times when he w- he was at the pinnacle and other times he, w- he was in the pit. But what drew him to God? Why could God say in Acts 13, 22, that David was a man after his heart? When you take a look at what happened with Bathsheba, when you take a look at the death of Uriah, uh, when you take a look at, at the sin in his life. Well, when you read the Psalms, you see his penitent heart. I mean, take a look at, for instance, at, at Psalm 13, I think is, is a great example of what you're talking about with regard, or what I'm talking about with regard to uh, David's heart. When you look at, 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 at Psalm 13, it's a, it's a short psalm. Here's what he says. Now listen to this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? 
How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest the enemy say I prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But even in the midst of his despair, look at the last two verses. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. He was always grateful. He was always repentant. That's hope for us. There is mm-hmm. no sin that you've ever committed that God has not paid the price for and puts behind him. He's not finished with you yet. What I like about David is he was an honest, sincere sinner. That is, he sinned, he made terrible mistakes, but he never justified it. He never tried to get away with it. He never hid it in a closet. No. When he was confronted, he owned up to it and went before the Lord and confessed to the Lord what he had done and asked for forgiveness. To me, that's pretty powerful. And you're right, Greg, it is, he is a microcosm of who we are. Yeah, exactly. All right, gentlemen, what are the main things to look for when you're looking to join a church? One of the things that I think is very important is, you know, traditionally we'd say, well, you know, you need to hear two or three sermons to see if they're biblical, if they're staying on target, if they're putting emphasis where it belongs. Um, I, there was a while when I was doing other ministries, I wasn't in a congregation, we'd go to different churches, and I was always listening for how much they really talk about Jesus and his saving work. Uh, that was a big one. The other thing I always uh, look at is uh, the not only the friendliness, but the sincerity of the people. And are they willing to talk to strangers? Are they willing to go out of their way? Are they willing to be honest about their own lives? And that, for me, is a very big one. And then, of course, uh, you want to see opportunities where you can grow as a disciple and minister to others. Yeah, one of the things that, that I think is helpful to look at when you're looking for a church is are they a gathering and sending church? Mm-hmm. What do I mean like by that. that? Are they gathering people to the family of God through the preaching of the gospel and extending the invitation to become a member of his family? And then are they following that up by discipling you and helping you identify who you are in Christ and releasing you or sending you to do what God's called you to do? Are they coming alongside of you? Are they not just a sage on a stage, but also a guide by the side. I like that. Wow. Uh, it's good. All right. With continual teaching and preaching, how do you keep from running out of ideas? You know, the truth is, it's never been an issue for me. <laughs> uh, I'm a storyteller at heart. I've been that since a kid. It's the way the Lord made me. I love the Word of God. I've studied it all my life. And when I sit down to work on a message and I look at the original language and I pray and I look at the, the text, and stories just keep coming to mind. And plus, I'm a pretty prolific reader as to what's going on in the news, so I can make it oftentimes very contemporary. But the Lord's been good. He's given me tons of stories, and I keep finding new stories all the time. You can never reach the bottom of the depth of how profound the Word of God is. The more you study it, the more that, that the layers that you peel away, the more truth you become um, aware of. So the study of God's Word, it isn't a matter of us having enough to say. It's a matter of what is God saying, uh, and, and how can I convey that 
and not provide a barrier to that communication. Because I, my mentor, J. Robert Clinton, talks about every follower of Christ has a core set. It means that there are 10 to 15 books that they go to repeatedly. There are certain passages, certain verses that they go to repeatedly. Others they have a general knowledge of, and everybody thinks you have to master the whole Bible. But be true to the core set, because God wants to teach you something. What he's saying is, I want you to teach and live out of these course, this core set that I, I've given you, and to, to master those. And so when you do that, and you dig deep, you're going to find more and more truth. You're going to find the gold that's buried underneath. And after 50 years of intense studying the Word of God, I'm surprised every time. I keep learning new things. So I'm never bored. Well done, gentlemen. Thank you so much. It's been a delight. Been good for us. We'd love uh, to. I've enjoyed it, Bill. I'm so glad. And I have to admit, it goes quickly. It oh, does. I can't believe it. Yeah, really. it really does. It goes, flies by. And thank you for all the great, great questions that you sent over today. I loved all of them, and I hope I got to almost all of them. And if I missed your question, I'm very sorry. I'll go through the um, list tonight and uh, check, double check. But that is our show for the day. I so look forward to spending time with you again tomorrow. I hope you have a wonderful night, and I hope as you lay your head on the pillow, you can just be confident that God has a great plan for your life, and he loves you. I do too. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.